We are continuing in our series on red words, looking at the stories and sermons of Jesus. And last week, we started a four-week look at the Sermon on the Mount. So today we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. So open up your Bible to Matthew chapter 5 if you don't have one. There's one that looks like this in the seat in front of you. Feel free to open up to that one on page 690. If you don't own a Bible at all, take it home with you. But if you're using another Bible, I don't know what page it's on. If you're like me, it's on page whatever the iPad says. This is where we're going to be. Last week, Dave started off our look at the Sermon on the Mount by looking at the Beatitudes and looking at the word happy and how it says it over and over and over. The term is often translated blessed, but it's the same kind of meaning. And we looked at countercultural happiness. He also pointed out some big themes from the Sermon on the Mount. He talked about how in the Sermon on the Mount, it's really this panoramic view. And if you take little chunks and little pieces, you're missing the big picture. And really, as Jesus is talking, he's not talking simply about life but looking at the bigger picture, looking at incorporating the kingdom of heaven and, and how this is really a panoramic look at things. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks a lot about reward, talking about heavenly reward. And then the third big theme is that uh, Jesus shows up and brings this paradigm shift, saying, you know, th- this is the way that you've been taught, this is the way that you've been raised, this is the way that you've thought about things, we're going to change that completely. And so, uh, in this passage that we're looking at, the, the last chunk of Matthew 15, this paradigm shift is the big focus that's going on in this section. So, very, very heavy on paradigm shift, and that's why I'm calling this sermon Upside Down. It's okay if you do this every now and then, that's, that's totally fine. But the reason I'm calling this Upside Down is because when Jesus came... He turned the world upside down. When Jesus came to this earth, He turned the world upside down. If you're following along, these are the first two blanks in your notes, and there's plenty more space to write things down. But when Jesus came, He turned the world upside down. For example, He said in John 3.7, You must be born again. He said in John 14.6 that no one comes to the Father except through Me. In Matthew 10.35, he said, I came to set a man against his father. And what we looked at last week, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit. And these are just a few examples of the things that he said that were completely backwards from what they knew. In this passage specifically, there are a number of standards or ways that they thought they ought to be living that Jesus took and flipped completely upside down. And when I say upside down, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Dave and I were laughing about this this whole week because really what he's doing is, is putting it back where it needs to be. You know, and they had been living in these wrong ways and Jesus came and said, no, 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 you're, you're totally missing the boat. So when I say upside down, he's really putting it back where it should be. He's fixing their wrong ideas about these different standards and these different things. And so what I've done uh, with this passage, Matthew 5, 17 through the end of the chapter, is I've, I've taken these and put them into four different categories. 
So let's dive in and take a look at what they are and what this means for us. But before we do that, let me just pray again. Lord, this morning is yours. And it's about you. Lord, let what we just sang continue to beat in our hearts. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. God, let that be why we're sitting in these seats right now. Let that be our motive for for paying attention and for, for listening and wanting to hear from your word because we recognize that we need you. And God, as, as, as I speak this morning, God, please don't let any credit fall to me. Please don't let my words be the ones that people hear. But God, let it be your words. Because it's all about you, Jesus. We love you. Amen. Amen. All right. Here we go. You guys ready? Strap on your seatbelts. So we're going to start actually a little bit down in our passage. We're going to start in verse 21. We're going to look at, here's your next blank fill-in, upside down commandments. Upside down commandments. Jesus is taking what the Pharisees had taught, what they had known, and changing it. So let's look at verses 21 to 30. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, And then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. So what we've got going on here is Jesus is addressing, uh, first of all, this uh, issue between letter of the law versus spirit of the law. Letter of the law versus spirit of the law. And many of you know what I'm talking about, uh, but those that are absolute experts on this are teenagers. Absolute Experts. See, part of it is their brains just have so much room, and so they're able to remember every detail of what you say and, and hang on to it. I don't remember exactly who this was, um, but I was at a camp with uh, some of these youth, and uh, it, was, it was time for bed. And, and so we got into bed, and we were up talking a little bit, and after a while I was like, okay, guys, it's time uh, it's time to go to sleep. Like, it's getting late. No more talking. 
at the top of his lungs, one of the guys starts belting out some song and singing. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, well, you said no talking. (laughs) Really? I have to spell it out for you, but you know, that's, that's the way they work. You said no talking. <laughs> but see, what, what Jesus is doing in, the, in this passage is he's showing them that they've missed it with the letter of the law approach. And he starts out with two of the easiest commandments and shows them how they've been missing the spirit of the law. The first one uh, he brings up is, is murder. Murder versus anger. And, and people can look at that and go, I haven't murdered. So I'm not liable to judgment. I, I can do that. I can not kill anyone. But what Jesus does is he takes a fairly easy commandment and makes it impossible. Absolutely impossible. He says, I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Now, these are all three different statements that are all making the same point. Not necessarily an increasing list with increasing consequences. So what is Jesus calling them to do here? Is it to just walk around and not be angry? Well, no. Jesus himself got angry for different reasons. Rather, what he's saying is he's saying, I want you to pursue reconciliation. I want you to pursue reconciliation. Um, Like I said, anger itself isn't the issue. Jesus gets angry. Paul acknowledges our anger in Ephesians and encourages us not, not to sin in our anger. The issue Jesus is addressing is the harboring of that anger and resentment toward others. See, as he continues, uh, he says, look, if, if you're angry and you're here going to the altar and presenting a gift, he says, look, you've got to work that out first. Work that anger out first. He says, pursue reconciliation to be able to stand right before God. How dare you come before the altar and, and, and try to give God your gifts and your, altar, uh, and your offerings when you're angry with someone down the road? And you've been hanging on to that bitterness and that anger and just letting it dwell inside of you. He also says, pursue reconciliation to avoid punishment. And he talks about, you know, going with someone to court and trying to work it out before because Man, you get in court, you could very well wind up in jail. Get it worked out beforehand. Take care of it. Pursue reconciliation. Next, he talks about uh, adultery versus lust. Again, he takes a fairly easy commandment, don't commit adultery, and makes it impossible. I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So what is he saying to them here? He's saying, give yourself to one. Give yourself to one in every single way. That means giving yourself to her um, or ladies to him physically, mentally, 
emotionally, relationally, spiritually. In every way, you're committed to one. Guys, let's be honest, this is a struggle for every single one of us. And, you know, women, you struggle with this too. It just looks different. But the heart issue is still the same. It's a continual struggle. So if you're not married, this means giving yourself to God. It means praying for the one that may be in your future. And it means not giving yourself to one at a time, sexually, but rather to one only, sexually. Physically, with your heart, with your thought life, devoting yourself to one. And if you are married, this means that your focus is your spouse. Where do you go with your darkest secrets? Where do you go with your deepest hurts? To your spouse. That's where the relationship needs to be. He's saying, look, it's not about the physical act. It's about everything that goes along with it. Where's your thought at? Where's your heart at? You might be committed to your spouse physically, but are you committed to her emotionally? Are you committed to her mentally? Or are you dancing around somewhere else? And then I love how he continues. He says, take this seriously. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body to go into hell. I don't see anyone here that's taking that passage literally, which is okay. I actually had a conversation with someone that thought you were supposed to take that literally. And uh, I said, well, why do you have two eyes? Why do you have two hands? He goes, well, I can control myself. I'm like, well, good for you. <laughs> Try to be honest with yourself a little bit, huh? <laughs> totally missing the boat. But what Jesus is saying is he's saying, look, take this seriously. Do what you need to do to keep yourself from sinning. What are some temptations that are around you? Whatever they are, remove them. Get them out of the way. Do what you need to do to keep yourself from sinning. Regardless of how radical and how out there some of these things may seem. Laura is very privy and aware to my guidelines and standards, and I try to continue to make them even more strict as I go and as this world just becomes more skeptical and cynical. and um, Yeah, but do what you need to do to keep yourself from sinning in this area. So that's upside-down commandments. Upside-down commandments. Next, Jesus talks about upside-down covenants. Let's take a look at verses 31 through 37. It was also said... Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. 
Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Upside down covenants. So first, what he talks about is divorce. See, what had happened is marriage had become a temporary institution. That had become very easy to get out of. In fact, a man could divorce his wife. Back in Jewish law, a man could divorce his wife simply for her burning the dinner. How many of you would be divorced if you... No, don't raise your hands. Uh, <laughs> um, if it was up to me to cook, I, I would have seen you a long time ago. Sorry, Laura. Uh, I, I would have burned the dinner a long time. But it, was, it, was, it, 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 it had become that a man could come for any reason and say, I want to divorce my wife. And as long as he had a reason, he was allowed to. And so Jesus is turning the perception of divorce upside down. Again, setting it back where it should be. Let me take just a quick little aside on divorce and remarriage, because I know that this is a touchy subject and a difficult subject to interact with. There are four main biblical views on divorce and remarriage. View number one stands that, and by the way, I should say that every single one of these views uses Scripture to dialogue and to talk about this issue. And each one, as I've read them, have very, very good points. The first one says, no divorce and no remarriage at all. The second view says that divorce is permissible, but no remarriage is permissible, according to the Scripture. The third view says divorce and remarriage is permissible for the reasons of adultery and desertion. And the fourth view says that divorce and remarriage are permissible in various situations. There are three main passages in Scripture that talk about divorce and remarriage. And you're welcome to jot these down. They're also in your community group questions. But Matthew 19, Romans 7, just the first few verses of Romans 7, and 1 Corinthians 7 talk a lot about divorce and remarriage. Now, there are a number of other passages that talk about this as well. Uh, but these three are the main passages. Uh, but ultimately, what you should see as you read Scripture, regardless of which view you take, is that God hates divorce. Genesis 2.24, he says that a man should leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And so divorce is taking that flesh and tearing it apart. Tearing it apart. So what I uh, encourage you to do is to dive into this topic and look at it, and, and come to your own conclusion. But, but here's the big part, is that you come to your conclusion biblically. 
A well-known pastor recently said this, The church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as their best defense. When you have in front of you flesh and blood people who are your brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles and coworkers and neighbors. Isn't that sad? He says the church is becoming irrelevant when we're going back and looking at the Bible instead of looking at the scenario in front of us. Don't replace God's word with your emotions or your circumstances as your basis for morality. So when I say go back and look at this biblically, don't start with a preconceived idea saying this is what I think is right and now I'm going to use the Bible to prove my point. But rather come to Scripture with an open mind and say, Lord, what do you have to say about divorce and remarriage? Lord, let me search your Scriptures and come to this understanding on my own and come to it correctly. Because how dare I come with my preconceived notions and tell the Bible what to say? Rather, the Bible needs to be telling me what's right and what's wrong. Now I get this is a touchy subject. This is a challenging subject and very personal for a lot of you. And far be it from me to stand up here and just wave a flag and say, nope, this is how it is. But... Scripture clearly says that God hates divorce. God hates divorce. Now, so God hates divorce. But divorce is part of a bigger problem, and that's the problem of O's. And he speaks to this. What, what had happened, the problem that had happened, is that a covenant like the covenant of marriage, or even as simple as your word, meant little to nothing. Where do oaths come from? Why do we have oaths? Why do we have to say, I swear, or I promise, or you know, kids on the playground do their pinky promises or their pinky swears? Why do they have to do that? Well, it's because your word is not enough. For you to say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to be here, I will follow through with that. And for someone to come and follow, you swear? Do you promise? That means that they're looking at what you just said and going, I don't buy it. I need more. I need something else. Look, will you sign this document to prove it? Will you, you know, fork over some cash ahead of time? Will you do this? Will you do that? Because I don't believe you at your word. If your word was reliable, you wouldn't have to swear by anything. So the issue isn't the oaths. When Jesus is saying, don't, don't take oaths, it's the reason behind them. So don't look at what Jesus is saying and going, oh, well, I, I can't sign documents anymore. I can't promise anymore. I can't whatever. No, no, no. That's, that's not the point. The point is to keep your word. Always. Keep your word always, even when it hurts. Dad, thanks for being here this morning. This is something I learned from you. Uh, You've said this multiple times to me. Your word is your bond. And you've taught me to be a man of integrity. 
So in front of everyone, I want to say thank you. Uh, thank you. Uh, I'm still working on it. I'm not perfect. <laughs> As you very well know, probably better than most people in here. But uh, I'm really trying, and that's something that I won't ever forget, and I'm trying to pass on to my kids as well. Uh, because it's important, and, and your word is your bond. So Jesus is taking these covenants and flipping them upside down. Third, <clears throat> upside down justice. Upside down justice. Let's look at uh, verses 38 to 47. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. So Jesus is addressing two things, a very similar concept. Uh, First of all, he's looking at vengeance. Now we live in a society that loves fairness. We love fairness. We love justice. That's why shows like CSI and Judge Judy are so popular, because we love seeing the bad guy get it in the end. We love CSI because they finally arrest the right guy and throw him away and toss out the key. Or we love Judge Judy because we like to see this bumbling person who thinks that they've got it all stand before this woman who is very eloquent and tells them like it is. And we love seeing her tell it like it is. That's the way, Judge Judy. (laughs) Woo! (laughs) So this idea is pretty easy for us to grab onto. Now, when I first read this, here's how my brain reacted. Okay, so verse 39, it says, But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Okay, so that means what Jesus is telling me, that I'm not supposed to retaliate. And I actually, like, type that into my notes. Okay, don't retaliate. But I missed the rest. But that's where my brain went. I'm just being honest. Like, that's the way that my justice-driven mind processes. Okay, I, I guess I'm not supposed to retaliate. But Jesus is saying that the standard is much higher than that. He pushes upside down justice even farther towards love. And so, in fact, what he's telling us is to retaliate with love. Retaliate with love. And this is where that panoramic view comes in super, super handy. What's your perspective? What's your perspective on life? Is this life all that there is? Is this life what's important? 
Rather, what Jesus talks about is he talks about the temporary. I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. That's your body. It's something temporary. You don't get to take it to heaven with you. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. I can't give you my cloak. I'm going to be cold in heaven. What? No, 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 no. It's temporary. And if anyone forces you to go with him one mile, go with him two miles. Again, this is about our time. Temporary. All these things are temporary. When we have this eternal perspective, when we have a view of eternity, we realize that our, our body, our stuff, our time, these are all temporal things. So what if they take it? Can we use that opportunity? Can we use that interaction? Can we use that situation to point someone towards Jesus? When someone is being a jerk and taking our stuff, can we use that as an opportunity to point them to Jesus? When someone's being annoying and taking a long time in front of us in line, can we use that as an opportunity to engage with them about Jesus? So this leads into, so retaliate with love. And this leads into loving your enemies. Loving your enemies. From ISIS to abortion activists, to that jerk in your office, to the person who just cuts you off, or to the kid at school that makes fun of you every day, you are called to love them. But here's the kicker. We are called to set ourselves apart. To set yourself apart. Jesus says, if you love those who love you back, you're no different than anyone else. And for the Jews, this probably cut to the core because the Jews were the chosen race, the people that were set apart. They viewed themselves differently than everyone else. And so Jesus is pointing out that they haven't been different than everyone else. In fact, they've just kind of come along with everyone else and started thinking in the same way. You're only loving your enemies? The Gentiles do that. You're only caring about those who care about you? The tax collectors do that. You're totally missing the boat on this. Jesus is reminding them who they are supposed to be. All right, so go and do. We looked at all these different things. That's what this passage said. Go and do this. Pursue reconciliation. Give yourself to one. Take this seriously. God hates divorce. Keep your word always. Retaliate with love. Love your enemies. Set yourself apart. Ready to walk out the door and do these things? It's impossible. If you missed that, here we go. We'll do it again. Boom. Impossible! This is absolutely impossible. And so that's where we come back to the last few verses of this chapter. And we look at upside-down standards. So what Jesus has just done in this pas- these passages that we've looked at is he's taken standards they've lived by for thousands of years and turned them upside-down. Now look at how he bookends this passage. He's got a little bit at the front and at the back. We're going to look at 17 through 20, and then we're going to jump down to verse 48. Jesus says, 
Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And then down to verse 48. You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So you're sitting on the mount, listening to Jesus say this. Listening to him talk. And he says, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. How do you react to that? Well, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious elite. They were the ones that everyone set their standard by. Oh, well, the scribes and the Pharisees do this. The scribes and the Pharisees do that. The scribes and the Pharisees live this way. So we've got to get up to the scribes and the Pharisees. And if we can live like the scribes and the Pharisees, then we're going to heaven. Because the scribes and the Pharisees have got it made. And Jesus says, no, no, no. You've got to go beyond that. So what are they thinking? That's impossible. Absolutely impossible. And then Jesus continues and he says, oh, by the way, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How do they interpret that? Impossible. I can't do this. Guess what? That's the point. That's exactly the point. Jesus is not coming in and giving them some new checklist. The way the Jews had been operating until this time was living with a checklist. It was a long one, but it was still a checklist. And see, the thing about a checklist is, no matter how long it is, it is, by some realm of the imagination, accomplishable. Because you can go through and, okay, I've got a lot of things to check off, but I'm checking them off and I'm getting them done. And so I can do this. So for the Jews, when they messed up, they would bring their offerings to pay for their sins. The weight was on their shoulders. And in a sense, they were trying to earn their righteousness. They were looking to the scribes and the Pharisees as the model, as the goal. But Jesus' point wasn't to tell them that their checklist was outdated and they needed a new one. Now dial in. Focus on this. Because if you walk out of here having heard that your job is to go out and to do these things so that you can be right before God, you have missed the point entirely. Your job is to not go out and do these things. Look, Lord, look how good I am. I'm, I'm doing all these things that you asked me to do. Can I get into heaven now? Can I get my salvation now? If you walk out with that mindset, you have missed it entirely. What was the purpose of the law? What was the purpose of the law? Paul tells us in Romans 3. Romans 3, 19-20 says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, 
and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What was the purpose of the law? The purpose of the law wasn't for us to go and do it and to earn God's favor. Rather, the purpose of the law was for us to see how horribly short of God's mark we come. How desperately we need Him. The law should do nothing more than drive us to our knees. See, in verse 19 here, Jesus is calling out the scribes and Pharisees. When he says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The scribes and Pharisees had made perfection seem attainable. I cannot murder. I cannot commit adultery. I can do these things. I can do that. And in giving new standards, Jesus is getting rid of the checklist system altogether. He's wanting us to see that we can't do this on our own, that we need him. And so, fulfillment of this law is through Jesus. Jesus shows up to fulfill the law. He fulfills it by being the only one to live up to it. Pursue reconciliation. Jesus modeled that. He modeled him giving yourself to one by being fully devoted to God and His work. He modeled taking this seriously. He modeled the idea of keeping your word. He modeled the idea of retaliating with love. He modeled the idea of loving your enemies and setting Himself apart. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. His righteousness exceeded that of the Pharisees. He was perfect. So how can we do anything but lean on Him? So what about the list then? What about these standards that we've been given? Everything is a response. It's a response. Everything we do shouldn't flow from a pursuit of attaining eternal life or from a desire for righteousness or a goal of checking every box. Rather, everything we do should be in response to what Jesus did for us. If we truly understand what He did for us and what He saved us from, how could we live any other way. How could I harbor anger towards others? When Jesus has removed my sins as far as the east is from the west, how could I be so flippant about my commitment to my spouse or my future spouse by lusting after and desiring others when Jesus is consistently faithful and reliable How could I be so casual about my sin when every single one put Jesus on the cross? How could I be so loose with my words and back out of what I say when Jesus kept His word to us even when it meant being betrayed and beaten and killed? 
How could I demand justice from others when all I want from Jesus is mercy? And how could I be content hating my enemies when God showed his love toward me and that while I was still a sinner, Christ died for me? So go and do because Jesus did for you. Let me pray. God, this this is not about me. It's about you, Lord. So don't let me Ever try to do this to earn your favor? Don't let me try to do this on my own. And don't ever let me try to take credit for anything righteous that I've done. But Lord, let me continue to come back to you. Let me continue to fall on my knees before you. Let me look at this impossible list. And just be drawn to you. Knowing that all that it's here for is to show me how desperately I need you. God, continue to keep me humble. Continue to keep me in a right state before you. In Jesus' name, amen.